You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, February 25th. I'm Karen Manirajo. And I'm Kat Smith. More than 60,000 middle schoolers are back in classrooms today for the first time since November. Not being in the school system means a lot more to children of color. Plastic bags were banned statewide nearly a year ago, but in stores and bodegas all over New York, they're still hanging around. Just because the ban has been enacted doesn't mean that we can give up on getting plastic bags out of our state. A new bill in the state legislature would provide thousands of low-income immigrants health coverage, and several new city council bills seek to change the NYPD's disciplinary process. What you are doing uh, in this bill, based on the way this bill is drafted, is penalizing police officers for acting lawfully. A 3D printing firm in Manhattan has developed an innovative way to produce COVID nasal swabs. And Gucci has extended its lease at Trump Tower for a discounted rate. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Katie Anastas. The state legislature's eviction moratorium ends tomorrow. That means pending eviction cases can resume and landlords can file new ones unless a tenant submits a hardship declaration. More than 6,000 tenants have filed declarations so far. Most say they've experienced financial hardship due to the pandemic or that moving would pose a health risk. City comptroller and mayoral candidate Scott Stringer has released a 35-page plan to increase housing affordability. At a press conference today, Stringer said the de Blasio administration's housing policies aren't working. Our skyline fills up with half-empty luxury high-rise condos, while NYCHA buildings are falling apart and our city vacant lots sit unused. Stringer's proposals include increasing social housing and converting vacant hotels and commercial spaces into shelters. New York City Police Chief Terrence Monaghan is retiring. He'll be succeeded by Chief of Detectives Rodney Harrison. Harrison was appointed the NYPD's first black Chief of Detectives in December 2019. The Whitney Museum of American Art has laid off another 15 employees. The museum has struggled financially throughout the pandemic. It reopened in August, but has reported low ticket sales since. A report from the New York City Comptroller's Office says arts and recreation has been the hardest hit sector during the pandemic. The report said 66% of people employed in the sector were laid off between December 2019 and December 2020. Italian sculptor Arturo de Modica, whose charging bull sculpture became a symbol of Wall Street, has died at age 80. He left the bull outside the New York Stock Exchange, illegally, in the middle of the night, December 14, 1989. It took a truck, a crane, and 40 of his friends. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Karen Manirajo. And I'm Katherine Smith. This morning, tens of thousands of New York City middle school students will be back in class in person for the first time since November. But most... About 70% of the district's nearly quarter million middle schoolers will continue to learn online from home. And a disproportionate number of those students are from lower income homes. As Renee Roden reports, experts say school administrators need to work with communities at the grassroots level to reopen schools more effectively. Diamond is 14 and an eighth grader at West Prep Academy on the Upper West Side. It's her first day back at school since November, but she says it doesn't feel special. On regular first day of schools, more people will come. It's mostly crowded, but now it's just fewer people and the energy feels low. But Diamond's classmate, 13-year-old Rosie, is glad for the change of scenery. Even so, she has mixed feelings about returning to the school's social scene. 
I don't know. It's like a lot of snakes in here. Snakes is what Rosie says when people are being fake. You'll notice both of these students focused on the same thing. Not academics, not COVID-19, but how returning to school affects their social life. Ernestine Briggs-King is a professor at Duke University and the director of the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. She says in-person social interaction is vital for middle school students. And that's such a critical part of their developmental trajectory. And so we want to think about how we meet um, their needs for, you know, social emotional engagement with their peers, and with their teachers and things of that nature. But she says many of the students who need the structure and resources of school the most are staying home as the middle schools reopen. Out of almost a quarter million middle school students, only about 60,000 are expected to return. Briggs-King says students going back to school are disproportionately white and from more affluent districts. The inequities that I think COVID has exposed <laughs> and, and for many of our families exacerbated, that it's just not being in the school system means a lot more to children of color. In neighborhoods hit particularly hard by the pandemic, parents are especially concerned their children could get sick or bring the virus home to vulnerable family members. To address those fears and to get the kids back to school, Fabienne Doucet, an urban education professor at NYU, says the Department of Education needs to communicate better with parents throughout the city. Rather than having kind of like a generalized response that's going to be a one-size-fits-all, it's really about thinking more community-based. And then your role, but your role as the administrators is to ensure that equity is at the center of all those community responses. Ernestine Briggs-King sees this as a moment of potential. I think it's a great opportunity for schools to think about how they can reimagine what school looks like for kids and how they can reimagine how they address issues of mental health, trauma, and even racial equity. She says in order to get more of New York City's vulnerable students back in school, the DOE must do more to listen to these families. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. This week, yet another decision was made not to charge police officers involved in the killing of another unarmed black man experiencing a mental health crisis. Daniel Prude. This spring, a pilot mental health initiative will launch in three police precincts in Harlem, which together accounted for over 7,400 mental health-related 911 calls last year. Yet given recent cases of law enforcement escalating mental health crises, it remains to be seen whether communities of color will be willing to use this service once it's launched. Don Kamen is a psychologist and former police academy instructor. He's now director of the Institute for Police, Mental Health, and Community Collaboration in New York. I asked him if he thinks the program is a step in the right direction. I, I think it's great. I will say that I, I think that we need a police response to some calls. And those are situations where there are concerns about dangerousness and or illegal behavior. But the majority of those calls, those mental health calls, are not about that. And they don't require a police presence. Uh, simply put, a mental health crisis deserves a mental health response. As we know so far, um, this program would involve uh, people would call in and um, two EMTs and one social worker would arrive on the scene. In terms of your experience, would these measures of de-escalation strategies work? Well, obviously, it's hard to know in advance. However, I, I will say that 
certainly having mental health uh, clinicians, a social worker, um, certainly is, um, I think, the, the right approach. Sometimes, even before an officer has a chance to say or do anything, their mere presence can escalate a situation through no fault of the, of the police officer. So if we think about replacing police officers with clinicians, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Your comment on um, police uh, potentially escalating a situation is so timely given um, the recent announcement of a grand jury choosing not to indict the Rochester Police Department after the homicide of Daniel Prude. Given that so many communities of color have a distrust of police when it comes to uh, mental health emergencies, um, what can be done to make sure that uh, communities of color use this service if it's available? I think simply education around the service exists, that it's a non-police alternative uh, to respond, to support, to help, to de-escalate and refer individuals who are in crisis, I would hope um, wouldn't be met with much, if any, resistance at all. You've personally led efforts to develop crisis intervention, both in your time as a police academy instructor and at various levels in New York State. Could you talk about efforts that could be taken to um, ensure that these de-escalation strategies are taught, whether to the current people that would be involved in this mental health pilot program or in the future for police if it was a situation where they were needed? So there's a variety of different, I think, training um, approaches now. What we do with the in our police training, um, we have, uh, you know, a lot of didactics uh, around mental illness and ways to communicate and de-escalate. But more importantly than the didactics is the scenario training or the role playing that we do. Uh, it's one thing for people to be sitting in a, uh, a class and, and listening and having some discussion. It's a little bit different when you take that kind of that newfound knowledge to sort of apply to skill-based uh, scenarios. And so we do a lot of that when we get to training police officers. Don Kamen, the director of the Institute for Police, Mental Health, and Community Calibration, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Back in 2019, the state legislature passed a ban on plastic bags in grocery and retail stores. The ban was supposed to go into effect last March. But as Haley Jow reports, just like with so many other parts of our lives, the pandemic slowed it down. At H Mart on Broadway and 110th, when customers check out, the cashier asks if they want a bag. Need a bag. You want a single bag or double bag? A single bag's fine. But no more plastic bags. Customers buy paper bags for five cents each, but many bring reusable bags. Alexis Goldsmith is the national organizing director of the environmental group Beyond Plastic. She said when the pandemic began, there were questions about the safety of reusing bags. We didn't know whether coronavirus traveled on surfaces. Um, we since have found reusables actually are safe and coronavirus doesn't live as long on cloth as it does on plastic. Also, before it went into effect, plastic bag manufacturers and bodega owners brought a lawsuit, claiming the ban was unconstitutional and would burden small businesses. In August, the lawsuit was struck down and the ban was enforced in October. 
It's difficult to assess how effective it's been. According to the Freedom of Information Law request obtained by Beyond Plastic, the city has only issued 38 written warnings to stores for violation. Goldsmith says it may just take a while for stores to make the change. There are stores that have thousands of plastic bags still that they need to get rid of. Just because the ban has been enacted doesn't mean that we can give up on getting plastic bags out of our state. The bag ban also specifically excludes restaurants, which can still use single-use plastic bags, utensils, and condiments for takeout and delivery. There's been a big increase in the year of the pandemic. Michael Oshman is the founder of Green Restaurant Association. He says that restaurants should cut back on single-use plastic. Many customers they're getting this food delivered at their home. Well, guess what they have at their home? Reusable metal utensils. A proposed amendment to add restaurants to the ban was introduced last month in state legislature. Dr. Stephen Cohen, environmental science and policy professor at Columbia University, says we may not see a lot of enforcement early on because the purpose of the ban is really to raise awareness. In New York City, people's attitude toward garbage is、uh, is casual, so you have to build a kind of cultural support for these kinds of things and. Getting people aware of the bags they're carrying things in is one part of that process. State legislators are taking additional steps to counter the rise of plastic waste. One proposed bill passes the expense of collecting and recycling plastic back to the manufacturers. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. My job was to like scrub tanks, get them ready for the new shipments of fish to come in. We'd have to pack fish, catch them, count them, bag them. Retired aquarium keeper Dave Lund recalls his first job tending fish when he was in high school. Sunday nights were the most special because that was when the fish from South America would come in. The electric eel came in, and it was huge. The biggest net we had was maybe like a foot wide, maybe nine inches deep, with a metal frame around it. Well, I was tasked with catch the electric eel. You know, we have a buyer. Well, I got shocked. The boss caught the eel with the same net, only he had rubber gloves on. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Every Thursday at 5 p.m., wherever you get your podcasts. Testing is underway for the new COVID-19 variants. City government officials across the state adopt new police reform policies. These stories and more coming up. B, one five two six. That's the new strain of COVID nineteen sweeping New York City. The mutation has been detected all over the Northeast. Meanwhile, the number of people in New York testing positive for the UK strain of the virus is rising, and two cases of the South Africa variant have been found in Nassau County nearby. Health authorities are struggling to keep on top of these mutations. 
the virus's genome has to be sequenced to figure out what type it is. That's a time-consuming, expensive business that has added a layer of complication to an already tricky process. Joining us now to discuss the city's efforts to test for the new COVID strains is Dr. Nishay Mishra, a virologist at Columbia University. Dr. Mishra, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting is New York City doing enough to test for these new strains of COVID? Uh, so the, the effort has started a couple of months ago. It's ramping up every day. How many people are getting the genome sequenced? Uh, 10 to 15 percent, but that, that is randomly picked because not all the samples coming across, they are appropriate for sequencing. And so if only 10 percent to 15 are having the genome sequenced, is that enough to be able to trace these new variants as they start to spread? It can be increased, of course. You're, you're saying we could be doing more? Yeah, we can do always more, but uh, that's a very cumbersome process. We need a lot of expertise. Is it safe to be opening nursing homes, movie theaters, sports arenas right now? I mean, the UK variant caused a new lockdown in London and the rest of the UK back in January, and that same strain is spreading in New York right now. Is it safe for us to open back up? We should have, like, limited crowd in these places, uh, taking all the precautions, like wearing the mask. Or, like the, We need to... The whole same phenomena goes, doesn't matter which variant, which strain, which virus is there. We have to follow the same rules, like wearing the mask, trying to distend people, small gatherings, those things. I see. So it doesn't matter, more infectious strain or the strains that we had back last spring, we should still be taking precautions. Yeah, precautions are the same. They are not going to change. There's, there's concern that some of these new variants might be a problem for the vaccines. What do you want people to understand about that? So, like, vaccine was being developed when the virus was developing or evolving. So, both things happening in the parallel. And the new variants come in, uh, the awful scientific community and the manufacturer, they also know about it. They also sequence, they'll get all the data, and they will modify the vaccine accordingly. So, at this moment, when we have the vaccine that is very efficacious, and so far, like, so we did not lose a lot of efficacy in any of the vaccine in the new variant, except one or two cases. So we should be fine, but I know I'm, I'm sure very soon they will have like multiple vaccines and they are uh, subjected to different variants. What do you think the media is getting wrong about these new variants? I think uh, we, we are not focusing on the defense mechanism. The media should be just talking about, okay, like it doesn't matter which variant is circulating around you. We need to take the same precaution. We need to try to avoid getting infected. And if we are sick, we shouldn't come in contact with anyone or go and get tested as soon as possible. Dr. Nischay Mishra, Columbia virologist, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Immigrant New Yorkers are at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19. Many have had to work in person throughout the pandemic, but 400,000 don't qualify for any federal or state-funded health care. A new bill, currently in the Senate's Health Committee, would change that. It would temporarily give some immigrants access to health care. Arcelia Martin has the story. Immigrants make up one-third of the state's essential workers, but many don't qualify for health care because of their status or income. The long game for advocates is to get medical coverage for all immigrants, but in the meantime, they're narrowing their scope, providing coverage for about 5,000 of them who are low-income. You know, do you have a roof over your head? Do you have food to eat? The last thing that you really should be worrying about is about access to health care during a pandemic. That's Arlene Cruz. She's with Make the Road New York, 
an immigrant advocacy group. They're co-leading the campaign. She says there are some programs offering temporary coverage for a select few groups of immigrants. Minors under 19, people who are pregnant, DACA recipients. But the coverage is easy to lose. You can age out or earn more than low-income applicants are allowed to. It can make staying covered tough. And while regardless of your immigration status, there are public hospitals and clinics you can go to. However, it's not the same thing as having access to health insurance where you can choose your doctor, where you will experience a smaller waiting period to actually see your doctor or access specialists. And Cruz says with temporary insurance, people would have coverage for medication, which isn't always available through public health systems. That's why she says she supports the new bill. It would cover New Yorkers who meet three criteria. First, their household incomes are 200% below the federal poverty line. Second, they've had a confirmed or suspected case of COVID-19. And lastly, they're excluded from other insurance because of their immigration status. Amanda Luggs is with the African Services Committee, a nonprofit advocating for African immigrants. She also wants the bill to pass. But she worries there's a misconception as to who foots the bill. And just to underscore it, it's, it wasn't or it never has been to give free health care. What it is, is the opportunity to buy the insurance coverage that you need. That means immigrants would pay for the coverage themselves. And two months after the pandemic ends, so would their temporary insurance. The legislation was sponsored only by Democrats. In order to move the bill forward, it needs to pass through the Health Committee. 10 out of 15 members are Democrats. No itinerary has been set yet for the next committee meeting. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. Last spring, Governor Cuomo issued an executive order requiring every city in the state to develop new policies addressing police misconduct. He said it was a response to the Black Lives Matter protests happening at the time, and he set a deadline of April 1st of this year. We're not going to fund police agencies in this state that do not look at what has been happening, come to terms with it, and reform themselves. Mayor de Blasio's office, the NYPD, and the city council are each responding with their own proposals. Katie Anastas reports. In January, the NYPD and the de Blasio administration adopted a new set of guidelines called the Disciplinary Matrix. The guidelines recommend penalties for officer misconduct that range from a loss in vacation days to termination. Last week, at a city council meeting, Councilmember Adrian Adams said the NYPD's penalties aren't strong enough. The current practice of simply docking vacation days when an officer's actions or inaction causes harm is a slap in the face to the victim, their families, and to their communities. Last week, in response to the new NYPD guidelines and to Cuomo's executive order, the city council introduced 12 bills covering a wide range of police operations. One bill would shift oversight of cases involving excessive use of force and offensive language from the police commissioner to the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Another is intended to protect suspects from unreasonable search and seizure. NYPD attorney Oleg Chernyovsky responded in last week's council hearing. What you are doing uh, in this bill, based on the way this bill is drafted, is penalizing police officers for acting lawfully and penalizing every other police officer at the scene for not intervening when their colleague is acting lawfully. Alexander Reinhardt is a law professor at Yeshiva University. 
He says individual accountability is fundamental to policing. The argument that it's punishing officers for doing their job is a strange one to me, that the officer's job is not to behave unconstitutionally. The officer's job is to protect and serve without violating the Constitution. Police union representatives say the city council's policies would prevent officers from doing their jobs and negatively impact recruitment rates. Paul DiGiacomo is president of the Detectives Endowment Association. He says that NYPD's recently introduced disciplinary matrix could address Cuomo's mandate for change. The matrix has been enacted. It's, it's in there only a couple of weeks. And, you know, uh, you didn't give it a chance yet to see if it works, which is unfair uh, to the people of the city and also to the people uh, within the police department. At last week's council hearing, Mayor's Office Representative Chelsea Davis called the disciplinary matrix a living document that could still be updated if necessary. The city council will continue considering their own reform bills to meet Cuomo's April 1st deadline. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. Innovation rarely happens overnight. The wheel was invented around 3500 BC, but the wheelbarrow? That took another 3,700 years. It takes time to understand a problem and find a fix. But last year, when the pandemic caused an international medical swab shortage, innovation had to speed up a bit. Kate Stockholm reports. Last spring, as COVID-19 began to shut down New York, nasopharyngeal swabs, those Q-tip-like sticks that feel as if they touch your brain during a COVID test, became suddenly vital and scarce. Robert Halleluck is founder of Print Parts, a 3D printing company in Manhattan. He remembers watching coronavirus cases mount. And the numbers were getting so staggeringly high, you know, you didn't have time to spin up a normal manufacturing process. Normal manufacturing might involve updating a factory, buying specialized equipment, sourcing new materials, or hiring and training workers. Aside from money, the process can require a lot of time. If you're a big company and you're sitting there saying, okay, you know, why am I going to invest all this money into this product that there might not be a need for in six months? That's Cody Burke, COO of Print Parts. He says building out a production line for NP swabs could have cost traditional manufacturing companies hundreds of thousands of dollars. It also might have been risky. By the time I'm up and running, this crisis might have passed. Other people might have done the same thing. Or, like, you know, things might be coming in from China again. Or Maine, or Italy, where other traditional swab manufacturers are based. Enter 3D printing. With this method, print parts could make thousands of swabs in a matter of hours. No new factories, workers, or training required. Instead, the company would simply load a swab design onto one of their SLA printers. In the industry, we sometimes just call them, like, goo printers, because it's, like, it's this sort of nasty, very sticky material. In the case of NP swabs, that goo is medical-grade resin. The resin sits in a container at the bottom of the printer. The printer dips in, and using UV light, it hardens one micro-thin layer of resin at a time. And then pull up and then repeat that process over and over again. That repetitive layering is why 3D printing is also called additive manufacturing. The ease of this process allowed a team of doctors to source 160 designs and develop a new NP swab on an unprecedented timeline. Dr. Rami Arnaud is with Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He led the team. You know, we were able to go from uh, identification of the problem to the first of four clinically validated 3D printed NP swabs in 22 days. If that feels fast, that's because it is. And it meant companies like Print Parts could begin manufacturing the same day designs were validated. However, the process wasn't without challenges. Halaluk had to build a special contraption to cure, or dry, 
thousands of swabs a day. It looks like a gas station fridge, but filled with UV light tubes and racks of swabs. We started to call it the disco oven because it's basically looks like you're in a, a big ultraviolet party at a club. <laughs> By the end of last year, Print Parts supplied over one million swabs for New York City's COVID tests. Dr. Arnaud says the collaboration and speed of the NP swab solution is exceptional, but he is unsure it will happen again without another crisis. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. Since Donald Trump's presidency ended, brands have rapidly distanced themselves from the former president. One that hasn't? Gucci. Earlier this week, the brand renewed its lease for space in Trump Tower at a reduced price, surprising many fashion and business insiders. Faye Liu has the story. When people think of Fifth Avenue, one word pops up, luxury. The street is home to multiple designer flagship stores, including Gucci's. The lease on a nearly 50,000 square foot space occupied by Gucci was supposed to expire in 2026. This week, parent company Caring Group announced it had renegotiated a new agreement at a discounted rate, terms were not disclosed. Gucci's decision to remain in Trump Tower puts the company at odds with most other big fashion companies who have moved to distance themselves from the Trump brand. But not everyone thinks Gucci has made a bad move. So I think that uh, business decisions should always be based on data and facts and numbers. Thomai Sardari is the director of NYU's Fashion and Luxury MBA program. She says Gucci's move makes good business sense. And if Gucci has managed to negotiate a great lease, um, this is wonderful for them because they can start rebuilding the brand of Fifth Avenue as they increase their sales. By staying in Trump Tower, Gucci will retain a prime flagship location for a reduced cost. Stephanie Takata is the CEO of the fashion design and consulting group Stateless. She says that the most important part of this deal are the bragging rights that come with a slice of Fifth Avenue real estate. Most major retailers or the major retailers that you see on Fifth Avenue are there so that they have a flagship presence on Fifth Avenue. Those stores are so expensive. The rent tends to be so oppressive that those stores lose money, really, if you look at, at the stores, lose money on actually having those stores there. But in, in the name of brand equity and in having a presence, not only for New Yorkers, but for world tourists, those flagship stores are important to them. Um, they kind of bring legitimacy to the brand. Gucci's retention of a Fifth Avenue footprint may be good for its public profile, but it's hardly risk-free. Kylie Scales is the founder of Think Free Global Strategies. She says that by continuing its association with Trump, Gucci risks alienating customers and distancing itself from the fashion world at large. I think if this situation is an indication, um, other brands will take will take pause in engaging um, with the Trump brand or any brand who represents um, uh, the or or doesn't represent um, us moving forward as a society in our in our addressing racial inequity. I think that we've seen from this example that addressing racial inequality and thinking about how to dismantle systems that oppress um, different various intersectional groups in our world is something that consumers. Um, they, consumers want to see more action and more activity towards dismantling those barriers. While other brands are taking strong social stances, Gucci's decision reads as politically passive. For now, the Gucci Fifth Avenue flagship will remain in Trump Tower. Fei Lu, Columbia Radio News. The COVID death toll passed half a million this week. For those coping with loss, the rituals we rely on for grieving have changed completely during the pandemic. In this personal essay, Kat Smith reflects on coming to terms with death during quarantine. 
For over 100 years, my family ran a funeral home, so I learned growing up when someone dies, there's a list of things that have to get done and a system for who does them. The stack of paperwork to fill out, the phone calls, the clothes you have to wear. And when an older family member died, I knew what time to show up and where to stand. There were fresh flowers and old photos, soft organ music and slow walks through the cemetery. Loved ones were all around, and after the funeral, we moved as a pack to a restaurant, feasting and toasting and reminiscing. Last spring, when COVID descended on New York, my husband and I abandoned our apartment and fled to Vermont. We quarantined in a house with no TV or internet and barely cell service. One morning, I was washing dishes under the frigid well water. We had been bickering about our dwindling savings. My husband sulked under the front window, the only spot in the house with phone reception. I heard him gasp. Conan is dead, he said, straining to hear the voicemail. Conan was his best friend. He lived in New Orleans. He wasn't young, and he didn't take care of himself. He lived off cheap whiskey and whatever food he could buy, selling paintings outside the hot dog joint on Frenchman Street. We thought he could survive anything, even a pandemic. My husband once saw him eat a live palmetto bug right off the sidewalk. The call was from Conan's neighbor. He said he'd found my husband's number in a notebook after police left the scene. No one on the block had seen Conan in days, and when the cops finally beat down the door, they found him on the bed. My husband lowered his phone and walked out the back door. I stood at the window and watched him cross the yard. I wanted to run after him, but I was still angry. I tried to remember the funeral to-do list. I kept picking up plates, rewashing them, and wondering what we should do. We could buy plane tickets and be in New Orleans tomorrow. No, too much money. Plus, I didn't know if planes were safe with the virus. I could hear my husband tearing wood panels off the old shed he was restoring in the side yard. There would be no convocation, no rousing toasts to Conan's memory, no flowers, just a lonely house on a mountain and the wind rustling the trees outside. We never found out exactly how Conan died. We heard later there was a socially distanced wake on someone's porch. Only a handful of people came. We don't even know where he's buried. Maybe someday we'll be able to travel down to New Orleans again. For now, we're still waiting to say goodbye to Conan, waiting to start checking the boxes off that list. Since the summer, Kat and her husband have left Vermont and settled back into the city. And that's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Megan Zarez ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Jack Truitt, with help from general producer Arcelia Martin and assistant producer Kate Stockram. Senior editor Layla Dose and assistant editor Haley Zhao led our copy team. Nicole McNulty managed our website today, and Katie Anastas, Renee Roden, and Faye Liu brought us the news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch advised our staff from New York, Massachusetts, and California. I'm Katherine Smith. And I'm Kara Manirajo. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>